So now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces in those days, the king Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel. The third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Medea and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, a hundred and eighty days. Dear Lord, we thank you for your kindness to us, Lord. We do pray to Pastor Adam to come to deliver your word. Lord, might he proclaim it boldly. Lord, thank you studying my gold, come fresh to his mind. Lord, might we hear the word as we ask. We be good listeners. Lord, might we receive it with hearts that are, are ready to be instructed, ready to be um, moved and guided by your spirit, Lord. Lord, might Jesus Christ be exalted in the church continue to be built. last week, the setting of the book is set to the days of a Ahasuerus. And when you're handling narrative, as we speak, of storytelling, we have to handle each and every detail that the narrator is trying to highlight or foreground so that we can understand why the situation is so dire or why the situation is so blessed. And here you notice the key detail that sets up the narrative of which we are about to uh, examine for the next few moments is what Pastor Dan just read for you in verse 1. Uh, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. Again, that is mere, that is not simply history reporting, but the facts are important that we understand the vastness of his kingdom for what is about to unfold in the story of Esther. Here, Ahasuerus is presented as being full of the benefits of the Persian conquest over the Babylonian Empire. We looked at that last week, and again, you can look at it from Ezra and Nehemiah, and then you can consider it as well through Daniel, but the Persian conquest over the Babylonian Empire, here Ahasuerus reigns. And then you notice the historical marker for you as well within the context is you notice the center of the Persian Empire has moved away from Babylon. Again, Babylon being the capital city, it's associated with the previous empire, so it had to be moved. One of the, if not the premier capital city in the Persian Empire, will now be the capital city of Susa. Notice the historical markers again, the vast reign of Ahasuerus. His power and his might. He reigned from India to Ethiopia. There's over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital. It's interesting whenever we read Old Testament narrative stories or we look at the historical books and sections and we notice cities and places, times, dates, and so forth when we see them in modern era. Susa is located in modern-day Iran. And it's still, interestingly enough, under the name Sus, or Sushan, depending upon where you see it listed. 
In fact, in a 2019 article from the Jerusalem Post, the author writes, quote, Susa was one of five major cities in the Persian Empire, which extended from West India to Northeast Africa. The wine-loving king, depicted in the book of Esther, was believed by many to be The Bible wasn't alone in depicting the important ruler. He was also the main character in the ancient Greek play entitled The Persians, as well as in the modern adaptation in the 2007 film, 300. Now again, here the writer in the Jerusalem Post article links at Ashuerus, the wine-loving king depicted in the book of Esther with that of Xerxes I. And just to settle that kind of uh, confusion, again, when you're reading Old Testament narratives, sometimes names and dates are, names seem to change, locations change terms. Here, I'll just note for you, you'll often see Xerxes in history because that's simply his Greek name. Or Xerxes is the Greek form, I should better say, of Ahasuerus. Point being, Ahasuerus here in Esther and Xerxes, who you'll often see him named in historical reference, is the same historical figure. And the importance for Esther as the narrative sets up is we need to recognize, as does the movie 300, Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, is one of the most powerful Persian kings of all time. And furthermore, if we consider where Ahasuerus is seated, seated, ruling over 127 provinces. In the ancient world at this time, there are only two superpowers. One is the Persian Empire. Two is the Keep this in mind, historically, as we work through the narrative of these two superpowers of the ancient world. So as the story then begins to unfold with Ahasuerus on top, notice his power and his wealth is here in our narrative story on full display. Look at verse 3, if you will. In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants, the army of Persia and Media, and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were all before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, a hundred and eighty days. So here, Ahasuerus decides to throw a, uh, a feast lasting nearly six months for anyone who is anyone who operated, who governed, who was overseeing and managing any place within his royal provinces. Sometimes when you look at this, and uh, critical theory uh, applies to the text of Scripture, textual theory. Some of the questions that come under uh, intense uh, investigative inquiry is, how can somebody right here, if you look at the Bible, it simply cannot be reporting on history because you have someone throwing a feast for 180 days. Think of it. Again, it simply says in the third year, everyone, all of the officials and all of the servants, the armies came, nobles and governors came, 
for 180 days. This is clearly fictitious. There's no way that we can leave each and every province for 180 days and celebrate our feast. The Bible is exaggerating. But if you think about it, it's not that hard to understand. For 180 days, the feast was open. The kingdom was open. So all of the dignitaries, dignitaries could come into the scene, the benefits of the kingdom, and they obviously came on rotation. Not everyone came each and every time. No one person came and stayed 180 days while this province disintegrated into chaos. But here at Hatchware, it's opening up his kingdom for 180 days, where they will be a host city to bring in all of the dignitaries, anyone who is someone be able to come and be wowed by Abraham. Then you notice at the end of the feasting with the nobles and the ruling classes, he seems to entreat the broader population who likely served at the prior days of feasting. Notice the text that says, And when these days were completed, 180 days or six months of feasting and hosting, and when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, capital city, both great and small, a feast, lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's house. If you think of this portion after hosting, it's somewhat analogous to a modern-day employee appreciation day. Those who are there for 180 days, hosting, whining, and dining, playing according to the rules, and ensuring that everyone important was wowed and impressed. At the end of it, it was time now for the citizens of Susa to party. Notice the party atmosphere that breaks out within Susa, and I want to note to you the details that really set up the situation that we're all familiar with, which we'll get to in verse 11 and 12. But here is a few instructions from verse 5, following in verse 8. Notice for the, uh, those in Susa, now that the dignitaries have somewhat returned, now it's turning its efforts into Susa to enjoy themselves. And you notice, and when these days were completed for everyone for seven days in the court of the Garden of the King's Palace, there were white curtains, violet hangings, fastened with cords of fine linen, purples and silver rods, marble pillars, also couches, gold and silver on mosaic pavement. And then notice verse 7. Drinks were served in golden vessels. Vessels of different kinds. And the royal, royal wine was lavished according to the boundaries of the feast. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Quite simply, if you look at the feast, what is about to devolve in Susa? The king makes an edict for the partygoers that there is no compulsion. Essentially, if we were to translate this out, it is the king making a rule that there are no rules. 
about the rule of dreams. It was opulence. It was turning to debauchery. Opposite of this behavior, hopefully we trust, is the presence of the Christians and their alcohol consumption. It is an important reminder to each who enjoy alcohol as a beverage to be wise in the way that they consume, that they be disciplined in their measure, that they be appropriate in their behavior. Again, the English philosopher Roger Scruton, in his little book, I Drink, Therefore I Am, he writes up what you would consider to be the absolute opposite of what is transpiring here in Jerusalem. And he speaks of wine this way, which is perhaps a way for Christians to consider appropriate consumption. As he speaks of the aid of wine, he says, Wine, drunk at the right time, in the right place, with the right company, path to meditation and a harbinger of peace. But it's the direct opposite of what is taking here in no compulsory wine absorption and drinking here in the first century. Again, the Christian is wise to receive of the distinction between lawful consumption and unwise and unlawful. Now, what is the point of the feast overall in the lavishness of vessels of wine overflowing and let every man have as much as he would desire? There is no compulsion. There are no rules on the rules of drinking. What was the broader point and instructional value? Well, it's simply this. A hatchware is here. It's throwing a lavish feast to instill awe, respect, with that fear into the hearts of both friends and foes alike. That is such a display of wealth, power, and limitless food and freedom demonstrates that a hashuaris is a force to be reckoned with. Why is that so important? that he presents himself with such power and pomp. What is the backdrop of the book wherein this comes to matter, that he throws a feast for 127 provinces, 180 days, and then throws a lavish feast for those who entertained within Susa? Why is it so important for him to impress upon him their power, his power, wealth, and prestige? Well, again, I noted for you at the very beginning, there are two people. Ashtoreth is here drumming up support for his next military campaign, which is going to be his attempt to invade Susa. 
ancient Greek historian Herodotus records this about these very events. Xerxes is saying his own assembled nobles, possibly during the very banquet described here in Esther. This from Herodotus. He says, quote, For this cause I have now summoned you together, that I may impart to you my purpose. It is my intent to bridge the Hellen Spire and lead my army through Europe to Hellen. That I may punish the Athenians for what they have done to the Persians and to my father. I saw that Darius, my father, was minded to make an expedition against these men, but he is dead. And it was not granted to him to punish them, and I, on his and all the Persians' behalf, will never rest till I have taken and prevented all of them. As for you, this is how you shall best please me. When I declare the time for your coming, every one of you must appear, and with a good will, and whoever comes with his best army, best equipped, shall receive from me such gifts as are reckoned most precious among them. So what is the backdrop of the beast? What is the point of the opposite? Again, still friends and full life. But it has to work if it's for to be recognized. And he will attempt to come. Further in the text, also that Queen Vashti is here dutifully doing her part. She also is gathering the ladies to wine and dine, the women also, to impress upon them the stain that the Persian Empire is full of power, wealth, and prestige. We have all the momentum. Notice the text, verse 9, Queen Vashti similarly also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belongs to King Ahasuerus. The division of the two parties is simply, it's not all that noteworthy, it's simply according to the gender customs of the time period. But on the last day of the feast, when the king was, and the greater population altogether were quite well drunk, Ahasuerus commands Queen Vashti to come and to essentially parade herself in front of the heavily intoxicated crowd. I know for you at the beginning of verse 10 where the wheels on the bus begin to fall off. Um, again, I'll note for you carefully as a Christian reader, verse 10, on the seventh day, so it's been six days as we jump back to verse 5 and the feast uh, of opulence has lasted seven days. We're on the final day. And the note to us through the narrator, beginning in verse 7, where the drinks uh, were served in the golden vessels, the royal wine was, and he, and he makes the purpose to say, lavish. And then he jumps to verse 8 to explain there was a rule, in fact, on the drinking. So, so drink, royal drink, and drinking. According to this edict, let every man do whatever he wants. What are we to expect by the time we get to verse 10, seven days later? Probably what we find. And the narrator leaps this in verse 10 when he says, On the seventh day, 
when the heart of the king was married with wine. Again, you can picture the raucous crowd when you have men at the end of verse 8 doing whatever it is that each man desired in relation to a lack of virtue and discipline. And a king that is leading the way with a lack of discipline and giving way to drunkenness. There is a cautionary word here. Yet again, as we receive wisely the gift of wine, and that which makes the heart wise and, and merry in the right proportion, with the right situation and the right people. There is a wrong way and an unwise to be a way to consume. And it's nothing new here in this particular text that what follows drunkenness is bad decision making. of the same thing with Herod. And there's a handful of times in Scripture where feasting and drunkenness leads to terrible decisions. Herod would be an analogous one in the New Testament. Uh, yet he also is given way uh, to perversion with alcohol. Loses his way. And then I, uh, the young gal who uh, prays in front of him and then uh, a, a wish is going to be granted. And do you recall the wish that was to be granted? then would probably be along the lines if we were to take the immediate and 
implications and the merriment of wine and the commandment and then followed, but the commandment perhaps would not have been issued short of his new Jerusalem. Commandment then does follow, however, because of his state of mind. And notice verse 11 what the command is. You notice in verse 10 the two commands here. He goes through the eunuchs where they then go over to where we found out in verse 9. The ladies are gathered at a, at a parallel feast. The eunuchs then take the command of the king over to verse 11. And the command is this bring baskets. Bring her before the king. And, and the note is not small, but it should trigger you in light of the larger conversation of opulence and the display of power of the king. Bring her before the king with the royal crown. In order to show the people and the princes her beauty. And the grounds for such a command is that she is a lovely girl. Troubling command to Queen Bathsheba to come and parade herself in front of what we know to be a largely, deeply intoxicated community of men. And there's really no way to interpret her response other than thinking her response was appropriate. point of the display to bring in Ahasuerus, even if it was a poor decision on behalf of Ahasuerus' side, to command King Vashti to come and to basically lustfully parade herself in front of a debauched and drunken crowd. It was voyeurism. But note carefully to yourself, it wasn't mere voyeurism. Sure, the note is She's a beautiful gal, and everybody wants to stare at her. Not to mention a whole host of drunken, raucous men would love to stare at her, hoot and holler as whatever it was that was commanded that she come and parade herself in front of the king and these in whom he wanted to impress. But he wanted to impress them is also an important note. Remember, he wants them to be impressed. He wants them to return when he calls. So in light of the call and the command, have Vashti parade herself in front of the men so they can ooh and ah, is yes, on the one hand, inappropriate lust that gives way again and follows a drunken, debauched crowd of men for seven days doing as they please. But it wasn't merely lust. Remember, it was also a calculation, even if a poor one. And that is, Ahasuerus views Vashti as a pinnacle display of his power. She is the, um, the sense of a carry-on to a Sunday seven days She is pinnacle. That's the notation for you in verse 11. She 
shouldn't just come before the king with whatever's going on or however her and the ladies have got on. You bring her in here and let her display herself for my pride and ensure that she comes with with her royal crown upon her head. One commentator helps fill this scene out by noting this vasty wearing her royal diadem was a living trophy of Ahasuerus' power and his So if you think of these opulent displays, the prestige, the wealth, the feasting, all 127 provinces over the course of six months, and a whole week of just the servants, those of their own city, are able to give way and do whatever they please as they see where are all these goods coming from. How can we have such power? How can we have such consumption? It is a Hashuarist. It is his power. It is his wealth. It is his prestige. We are as virgins. With this in mind, you then can come to comprehend, in a meaningful sense, a sense why Ahasuerus was also enraged when Vashti refused to come. Notice verse 12 very carefully. Um, again, then there's the intent I, in verse 11, in order to show the people and the princess her beauty. But Queen Vashti, for her part, both at his inebriation level and his attempt at blinding and dining the entire city of Susa. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Quite simply, at the end of six months Everything being yes and okay. This we will do. That we will do. This we will share in. This we will consume. Six months of that end at the pinnacle moment where, ta-da! to understand the backdrop to life in the Persian Empire at this time. It's an empire that is on the verge of war. So now you're trying in your mind as a reader to think of yourself living in the situation and one of the 127 provinces is actually there as um, a Jewish individual who had not returned in the institution. So you're observing the lavish feasting and partying, and you recognize that the empire is on the verge of war. What is 
that do to an empire when they're on the verge of war? It often makes it very unstable. We can look at modern war conflicts in the same way. Problems abound at home when the empire is out at war. Um, many conflicts arise when an empire is on the verge of war. We can experience that somewhat domestically in the U.S. even over the course of the 20 years following in the Middle East. And then we're looking at empires that are at war right now. It is anything but a stabilizing feature of an empire when it's on the verge of war or a stabilizing Now you have this picture of the king who is at the top of the empire about to make a war campaign, and he loses his mind for the fact that he's not here for it. He's humiliated. He's full of pride, and now he's going to be embittered and vindictive. He has been told no. And his temper, combined with inordinate life in the empire unpredictable and dangerous. We'll notice that in the next episode in which I preach. Things will go great for Cassidy. He turns, obviously, his anger and affirms sin and, and sees his death. And then there's a long pursuit of finding her replacement, and that will lead us to episode number two. But what it does show Cassie Ware is an unpredictable man, and he is a very dangerous man. The question to the readers is if Vashti, his own queen, is not safe from his bitter wrath, then who is? This is the question of the citizen living in Tucson and all in the Persian Empire. Two questions that I want to end with one of antiquity and one that is more pressing in the present moment, in the current moment. I mentioned this to you just a moment ago, but this is the question that the reader or the narrator is leaving you, the reader, to ask at this point in the narrative. End of scene. Um, I have to wear it. It's a word. A large-scale investment has brought about the death of question of the ancient reader at this point in time of the individual living in the Persian Empire here in the central capital of Tours is this. What will become of God's people if his wrath is turned on them? Living in an empire on the verge of war with a man whose temper combined with his inordinate hatred makes life utterly that we'll pursue within the next minute when we'll see what happens to the people and the stories of that. But then the question that I want to build on just and here is our closing is this question for you. 
consider the scale and the movement of the empire. Not only did you have the man who was able to stomach the devastation of the Greek was was considering if you're reading the text of Scripture in the movement of empire. And then this is what we have right here. We have the Persians who are about to enter the empire. And then we have people living in the shadows of their unstable government. And we're wondering, will the campaign continue? Will we be out of campaign? Or will this whole thing implode on itself? This is setting it up. The question is, we face right here, right now, Can the power and wealth of earth be redeemed? Is this a question of Exodus? Is this Jesus for ourselves? Can the power and wealth of earth be redeemed? Frustrated. And even destroyed. The plan and promise of God. And, and I think it's confession, uh, a confession of Christians, right, or believers in Christ, we would say no, but then we're often given the hysterics or worries or fears of the movement of earth and empire. If we say no, that the power and wealth of earth and empire cannot destroy or even frustrate the plan and promise of God to receive them, why do we have this hesitation? Where is the picking of strength in the movement and conflict of empire? Is I do the effort, is a faith in the spirit, casting out words and casting the flesh from you? With all of fear mongering that they try to warn you about, you give way. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry with you and you be destroyed in your way. Verse 
His wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Father, we do take refuge. We're here on Lord's Day because we do take refuge in Christ, the Son. He, he, he is our King, and, and we hope and trust and rest in Him. Earthly regimes are turning and turning and rising and falling, uh, living in consumption that is unsustainable, and projecting wrath and bitterness and vitriol across borders, within borders, where are your people? How shall we behave? What do we learn from your written word? Bless us with presence and patience, with humility and with hope. Bless our faith, where it be strength and the power of your sovereignty. You are not one who sits back and watches, but you're one who sits back and laughs. And you hold them in derision, and then you hold your people in. 